Chapter 13, Part 2 of With Fire and Sword. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. With Fire and Sword by Samuel H. M. Byers. Chapter 13, Part 2. Lieutenant Rockwell who had asked my leave to copy the verses that first morning, was a composer, and there in the dust under the old hospital he had, unknown to me, written the first music to which the song was ever sung. Later it had many other settings, but that one, though difficult, remained the best. The song has often since been sung to the air of the red, white, and blue. This is the history of the song which I print here as a part of this narrative. Sherman's March to the Sea Our campfires shone bright on the mountains that frowned on the river below, while we stood by our guns in the morning and eagerly watched for the foe. When a rider came out from the darkness that hung over mountain and tree and shouted, Boys, up and be ready, for Sherman will march to the sea. Then cheer upon cheer for bold Sherman went up from each valley and glen, and the bugles re-echoed the music that came from the lips of the men. For we knew that the stars in our banner more bright in their splendor would be, and that blessings from Northland would greet us when Sherman marched down to the sea. Then forward, boys, forward to battle. We marched on our wearisome way, and we stormed the wild hills of Resaca. God bless those who fell on that day. Then Kennesaw, dark in its glory, frowned down on the flag of the free. But the east and the west bore our standards, and Sherman marched on to the sea. Still onward we pressed till our banners swept out from Atlanta's grim walls, and the blood of the patriot dampened the soil where the traitor flag falls. But we paused not to weep for the fallen, who slept by each river and tree. Yet we twined them a wreath of the laurel, as Sherman marched down to the sea. O oh, proud was our army that morning that stood where the pine darkly towers, when Sherman said, Boys, you are weary. This day fair Savannah is ours. Then sang we a song for our chieftain that echoed over river and lea, and the stars in our banner shone brighter when Sherman marched down to the sea. The following is a note from George Carey Eggleston, editor of Eggleston's famous War Ballads, a collection of war songs including the one just presented. General Sherman, in a recent conversation with the editor of this collection, declared that it was this poem with its phrase, March to the Sea, that threw a glamour of romance over the campaign which it celebrates. Said General Sherman, The thing was nothing more or less than a change of base, an operation perfectly familiar to every military man. But a poet got hold of it, gave it the captivating label The March to the Sea, and the unmilitary public made a romance out of it. It may be remarked that the general's modesty overlooks the important fact that the romance lay really in his own deed of daring do. The poet merely recorded it, or at most interpreted it, to the popular intelligence. 
the glory of the great campaign was sherman's and his armies the joy of celebrating it was the poets the admiring memory of it is the people's end of editor's note as stated i slept nights now on the floor of the prison hospital this added comfort however did not tempt me to stay in prison if i could get away once more we heard that the prisoners were to be carted away to some safer place out of the line of sherman's army now turned north and moving rapidly towards us a night or two before this move of prisoners really commenced lieutenant devine of philadelphia joined me in an effort to get away the walls of the least used room of the hospital were made of joined boards by the use of an old case knife hacked into a saw or auger we managed to cut a hole sufficiently large to permit us to pull ourselves through and out into an attic above a little porch we repaired the boards as best we could and crept out into the dark hole it was the attic of the same porch on which our glee club stood when they sang my song it was a little cramped up place we were in where we could neither sit erect nor lie at full length there were no guards inside the prison hospital the night was very dark the sick prisoners seemed to be sleeping a dim lamp hung from the ceiling we were not detected the next night at midnight when the prisoners were being marched away two of them were missing what a night and day and part of another night that was for us crooked and cramped as we were in the top of that little porch at the next midnight when every soul prisoners guards and all seemed to be gone far away and dead silence was upon the place divine and i crept down from our hiding place the big gate was closed and locked by the aid of a scantling i managed to get up onto the high brick wall my surprise was immense to see guards waiting for us outside and to know that we were discovered one of the guards rushed up to his post at the top of the wall but he was too late to shoot we were already in hiding among the empty board huts and barracks in a moment the big gate opened and a hundred men rushed in looking for the escaping yankees they howled they cursed at us they set the barracks on fire then amid the melee and excitement in the dark my comrade and myself pulled our gray blankets about us picked up a water bucket each and pushed up to the guard at the gate we were going for water we said the lieutenant says the fire must be put out without waiting a reply we hurried out in the darkness there were some vain shots after us shortly we heard the tramp of horses coming toward us a friendly culvert in the road into which we dodged afforded us protection while a whole company of johnny rebs rode over our heads what would they have thought that night had they known it as they went skipping along with arms and jingling sabers to confront sherman's advanced guards we were gone after a while in the outskirts of the city we saw a light in a cabin and a negro walking up and down by the window every negro we knew to be a loyal friend this one we called out among some rose bushes in the dooryard instantly and without fear we told him who we were and that we were in his power there is not a question but he would have been well rewarded had he betrayed us to the confederate soldiers in the city that night few words were spoken 
That morning, two escaped prisoners were secreted under some beanstalks in the garret of the Negro's cabin. The Negro's sick wife lay in the single room below. Had we been discovered now, that Negro would have been hanged from his own door lintel. And well he knew it. Sherman's army was already pounding at the gates of the town. He was crossing the river, and his shells reached to the capital. This much we knew from what we could hear in the yard below, for the Negro's cabin stood at the edge of a green lawn where General Chestnut had his headquarters. We broke a little hole through the siding of the house, and now could see what the general and his staff were doing. We also could hear much that was said. Once we thought ourselves discovered, for we observed two or three of the general's negro servants standing in a group on the grass, looking steadily toward the spot where our little improvised window was. What on earth were they looking at? It was not much the old negro could give us to eat. A little dried beef and some cold corn bread. That was all, save that once he brought us a gallon of buttermilk. He had no cow, but he would not tell us where this, to us, heavenly nectar had come from. There was much hurrying of officers back and forth at General Chestnut's headquarters, and plainly we could see there was great excitement. Our own negro was kept going back and forth into the town to pick up for us whatever news he could of the fight going on at the river. After a while the cannonading grew louder, and it seemed to us the conflict must be right at the outskirts of the town. Then we saw General Chestnut hurriedly ride on to the headquarters lawn, and we distinctly heard him say to an officer, Sherman has got a bridge down. The game's up. We must evacuate. In a few minutes the sound of the guns increased, and then we saw General Chestnut call his slaves to him to bid them farewell. It was a touching scene amid the dramatic surroundings. He seemed very kind, and some of them, in their ignorance, wept. You will be free, he said. Be good. I thought he too was affected as he mounted his horse and followed by his staff rode away. He was hardly out of sight when our negro protector came running toward the cabin. He was tremendously excited. A tall old cylinder hat he had picked up on the way was on his head. His eyes bulged out, his hands waved like windmills. He was celebrating. In a moment the black face and the cylinder hat shot up the ladder and through the hatchway to where we were. God Almighty be thanked! he cried in a loud voice. Mass of the stars and stripes are waving above the capital of South Carolina. Praise to the God Almighty! Sure enough, Union troops had entered, and a flag from my own state had been run up on the state house. Instantly we bade him hurry and bring some Union soldiers to us. In his absence, Divine and I stood, shaking each other's hands and thanking God for our deliverance. No slave who had his chains knocked off that day by the coming of the Union Army felt more thankful than we, freed from the wretchedness and horrors of fifteen months of imprisonment. Now we could see the Confederate cavalry evacuating the town. Whole companies passed, each trooper having a sheaf of oats slung to his saddle-bow. Shortly our black friend returned, and with him two Union soldiers. "'It is time to drink, boys,' they cried out as they fairly forced us to partake of the whiskey in their canteens. When we all went down to the yard, I was sure we would be recaptured, for the rebel rear guard was passing close to our cabin. The flying troops, however, had fish of their own to fry, 
and were in too much haste to be looking after us. Now, too, we were surrounded by General Chestnut's black servants, who were hopping about giving thanks for their freedom. I asked one of them what it was they had been looking at so attentively the day before, when I had seen them gazing right at our hiding place. Ha ha, massa, we just knowed you was up there all the time. Reckon you didn't like that our buttermilk we un sent you. Our negro friend then had made confidence of them, and we had been fed, without knowing it, on some of the good things from General Chestnut's kitchen. Should the general ever read this little book, I hope he will cease wondering what became of his buttermilk that day at Columbia. Now our two soldiers escorted us to a street where some of the army had halted and stacked arms. A Union flag hung over a stack of muskets, and no human being will ever know with what thankful heart-beatings and tears we gathered its silken folds into our arms. Now we knew that we were free. The terrible days were indeed over, and God's rainbow illumined our sky. In half an hour the victorious veterans of Sherman's army, their great leader riding before, with bands playing and banners flying, entered the captured city. My comrade and I stood on a high doorstep and saw them pass. Someone pointed us out to Sherman, and for a moment the whole moving army was halted till he greeted the freed prisoners. We two comrades lived a month in that short seventeenth day of February, 1865, in Columbia. I think we shook hands with a thousand soldiers, even with many soldiers we had never seen before. It seemed to us that everybody must be as glad to see us as we were to see them. That night Columbia was burned to the ground amid untold horrors. The conflagration had commenced from bales of cotton that the enemy had fired and left in the street to prevent falling into the Union hands. A big wind rose toward evening, and the burning cotton flakes were flying all over the city. It was a terrible spectacle that night. My comrade and I walked about the streets till nearly morning. Whole squares and streets were crumbling to ashes, and tall buildings tumbled down everywhere. Here and there, too, there was a terrific explosion. It was Moscow done over on a smaller scale. A division of Union troops, under Hazen, was sent into the town to fight the flames and to arrest every man discovered firing houses or walking around without a pass. So it happened that my comrade and myself, though but innocent spectators, were at midnight arrested and taken to provost headquarters. We very soon explained ourselves and were released and sent to comfortable quarters, where we slept till late the next day. It was four nights since we had had any sleep at all, but the sights of that awful night will never fade from my memory. Most of the citizens of Columbia had sons or relations in the rebel army. Half of them were dead. The army itself was flying everywhere, and in the blackness of this terrible night their fortunes were all lost. Their homes were all burning up. Many wandered about wringing their hands and crying. Some sat stolid and speechless in the street, watching everything that they had go to destruction. A few wandered around wholly demented. Some of the invading soldiers tried earnestly to extinguish the flames. Others broke into houses and added to the conflagration. 
numbers of the federal prisoners, who only a few weeks before had been marched through the streets like felons, had escaped, and what average human nature led them to do never will be known. There were fearful things going on everywhere. It was reported that an explosion occurred in one house and that twenty-four soldiers carousing there were lost in the ruins. Most of the people of Columbia would have been willing to have died that night, then and there. What had they left to live for? This, too, was war. When the army entered in the afternoon, Lieutenant Devine and I, as related, stood on the high steps of a mansion and watched it pass. Shortly after, a very charming young woman, a Mrs. C., seeing us, came down and invited us into her father's house and gave us food. It was the first real food we had had for many, many months. The lady's father was a rich jeweler, and, though a southerner, was a Union man. Her own husband, however, was somewhere in the southern army. My comrade and I spent an entertaining hour in the mansion, and then went and walked about the city. At six o'clock the awful cry, The town is burning up! The town is burning up! was heard everywhere. Divine and I at once thought of Mrs. C. and our friends of the afternoon, and hurried to their home to offer help. The flames were already across the street from there. Mrs. C.'s father was weeping in the drawing-room. Once he took me by the arm and led me to where we could see his own business establishment burning to the ground. There goes the savings of a life, said he, in bitterness. There is what the curse of secession has done for us. There is what Wade Hampton and the other political firebrands have done for South Carolina. My comrade and I at once began carrying some of the more valuable goods out of the house for them doing everything possible to help them save some remnant from their beautiful and luxurious home. We ran up and down the mansion stairs until we were almost dead with exhaustion. Everything we could save we piled into a phaeton that stood by the yard. Once the lady cried that her child was still in the house, burning up. Her shrieks pierced even the noise of that fearful night. Her alarm was without cause for I soon found the child safe in the arms of a faithful slave-nurse. She had simply carried it out of danger. When the walls of the house seemed about to fall, Divine and I took the loaded buggy, he pulling in the shafts, I pushing behind, and, followed by the weeping family on foot, we drew it for a mile or more to the outer edge of the town. Here we left them, in safety, by a little wood, yet not knowing if we would ever see them again. Many of our soldiers were burnt up that night. The next day Sherman's army left the ruins of the city behind them and marched away. They had, however, left supplies of rations for their unfortunate enemies. A train of empty wagons was also furnished for those fugitives who wished to follow the army and work their way north. Hundreds, possibly thousands, left the smoking ruins of their homes and traveled along with us on every conceivable conveyance that was heard of. Black and white, slave and free, rich and poor joined in the procession behind the army. Mrs. C. and her father's family were among them. I now tried to find my regiment. It was gone. Many battles and many marches had so decimated it that the little fragment left had been disbanded and transferred into a regiment of cavalry. 
Colonel Silsby of the Tenth Iowa offered me a place with his mess. I accepted. The colonel, as it happened, had charge of perhaps a hundred prisoners, captured on the march. Naturally, I was interested to go among them. I soon saw how much better they fared than I had done when in southern hands. Two or three of them, as it happened, had been among the guards who had treated us so badly when we were in the prison, known as Camp Sorghum outside of Columbia. They were perfectly terrified when they learned that I had been there under their charge. They seemed to fear instant and awful retaliation, but I thought of nothing of the kind. I was too glad just to be free to be thinking of any vengeance. A curious incident now happened. This was the discovery, among these prisoners, of the husband of the young Mrs. C., who had given us food in Columbia, and whose belongings I and my comrade had tried to save. He was overjoyed to learn from me that his wife and child were at least alive. I instantly went to General Logan, and related to him how this man's family had been kind to me the day that I escaped. I had no trouble in securing his release. It was at Logan's headquarters, too, that I had secured money, and an order of provisions to give to Edward Edwards, the black man who had been the means of my final rescue. His sick wife had kept him behind, else he would have followed the army. We left him in Columbia. Years later, as a sign of my gratitude toward this slave, I dedicated a little volume to him, in which I had described my prison life. End of chapter 13